Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a wonderful show for you this evening. Caroline Blaze Jensen is here with us, and uh, she is just a truly amazing, wonderful person, and I can't wait for you to meet her and hear about her, her story and, and so many things that, uh, that are just inspirational to all of us out there. Before we get started, a couple things about what's going on in the world. Uh, we've been talking recently about some of the very, very cool events that were showing up in Social Flight because it's such a great way to monitor what's happening in general aviation. And last week we talked about seeing pumpkin drops. Uh, which are, you know, the contests that have been happening at all these different places where I guess people are dropping small pumpkins out of their planes onto targets on the ground, just like a flower bomb drop. Uh, I am not aware of any pumpkin-induced damage that has uh, occurred uh, in any way, but um, the pumpkin drop season is now over, and now we're starting to see everything come Thanksgiving. And so uh, turkey trots at airports. If you know of an event happening at an airport near you that is uh, celebrating Thanksgiving and the season of autumn, please be sure to uh, let us know. We'll make sure we get it on Social Flight if it isn't already there. And of course, just go and check out socialflight.com and the free Social Flight mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, and you will be able to see all of the events that are happening, both in person and online like this evening. In addition to that, we have our Fly to Win Challenge, where we're giving away all sorts of prizes. We're uh, choosing our winner today for our Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset, and then more gifts and prizes to come as we continue through this season all you have to do is get the mobile app, go to an airport, check in. It's free. It's easy. And uh, we're just here to support general aviation. In addition, our FAA learning system on socialflight.com makes it possible for you to go on and watch some videos and get wings credit with the FAA. Or if you're a mechanic, you can get AMT credit or even your IA renewal hours. Just go and check out socialflight.com and uh, it's all there for you. Now, to get to tonight's uh, guest, I am so, so excited about this. Caroline Blaze Jensen is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy, a retired fighter pilot and veteran. She is a highly experienced leader, command pilot, instructor pilot, and evaluator. And during her time in the Air Force, she accumulated over 3,500 hours flying numerous aircraft, including the F-16 Fighting Falcon, as well as combat experience that includes uh, flying missions in Operation Iraqi Freedom, supporting U.S. troops and our allies on the ground. Caroline was also the first female reserve officer to fly for the United States Air Force Air Demonstration Squadron, known as the Thunderbirds, and was the first woman qualified to fly in the Air Force's new jet trainer, the Boeing T-7A Red Hawk. I'm going to bring her on the line now. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Caroline Blaze Jensen. How are you doing, Caroline? 
I'm great, Jeff. Thank you. And I'm sorry I missed out on the pumpkin drop. That sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I was, you know, usually you think about fragile things going there, but uh, we first announced that when we had Mike Bush on the show and his reaction was, is, is there going to be a, like a pumpkin strike? Like is somebody, I, I could see like someone hitting the tail or like, how big are these pumpkins people are dropping? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been involved in uh, uh, like uh, uh, any uh, local GA airport activities with things like flower bomb dropping or uh, candy drops or any of these other things? Um, uh, back in at the Air Force Academy when I was on the, glider team i never did this myself of course but the cadets would try to drop um like tennis balls into the superintendent's pool <laughs> out of a glider <laughs> a rumor anyway that's what used to do that so that's another closest that i've gotten <laughs> in in theory that's what happens yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can i can only imagine um so i you there's so much to your story and um and i'd like to to set the kind of the the baseline here by letting people know a little bit about who you are and where you came from. So uh, you came from a, a, a family that really is rooted in military service and uh, and really dedication and patriotism to the country. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you kind of found your path towards flying and and eventually into uh, you know the academy? Yeah, definitely. I'd I'd love to. Um, I uh grew up in wisconsin my uh, dad is a vietnam veteran and flew helicopters in the marine corps during vietnam and his father was in the coast guard um on a coast guard cutter in the north atlantic during world war ii and um would tell stories about how um he was on a boat and um they would they captured a submarine and, and riding these like huge waves. And he said, if you can find that boat, you'd still see his handprint on the till of the rudder. Um, but he actually was, got his orders to leave. My father was his first of five children and he got his orders to leave like the day that my dad was born and my dad was born on Christmas Eve. So imagine wow. like leaving everything that you know and love and feel comfortable with a new kid to go and serve. And, and my grandpa was very proud of his service. And then on my mother's side to my grandma on my mom's side, um, went and served in the Coast Guard and she was a spar down in Florida. And she was always really proud of her service. So I, I grew up hearing about those stories and knowing that they had served and, and wondering what it is that makes people want to leave mm -hmm. their home and the comfort of their own home and go and serve their country. And they were just really big patriots um, believe in our country and and they instilled in me the desire to want to serve something bigger than myself and to really serve so that veterans like my grandparents and other veterans who did serve before can can you know rest peacefully knowing that there's someone there to take up where they left off um, yeah. so I started at a very young age that's what I wanted to do uh, and then I I really wanted to fly. I saw a movie when I was about six years old and it was a biplane and they were flying around in the clouds. And as a six year old, I was like, you know, can you get out and walk in the clouds? And like, what does it feel like? And what does it look like? And, um, and so I was just like really mesmerized with the idea of flying around clouds. Um, and so I, I was really excited about that. My dad was in the Minnesota Air National Guard and my parents divorced when I was seven. And when we'd go visit my dad, we'd see parachute, you know, drops out of C-130s and cargo drops and and I was just really enamored with that whole kind of life and and aviation and flying and serving at the same time so 
I really wanted to do something where I could marry my passion for wanting to fly and serving my country and the Air Force Academy was the perfect thing for me. So I, I worked very hard to get into the Academy. I um, did not get the scores that I needed to on the ACTs the first time I took it or the second or the third. So I actually took it four <laughs> times <laughs> so that I could meet the, the scores that I needed to be competitive to go to the Academy. And I did get in. And um, so I had you know spent all this time wanting to be a pilot and I was on the right track and I got on the plane to fly out to Colorado Springs. And that was only the fourth time I'd ever been on an airplane. So really, so that yeah. was, <laughs> that's fascinating. Now, I mean, uh, uh, wow. And, and so, first of all, I just want to go back and give proper credit that, I mean, he, the Coast Guard that we think of back when you go back to the World War Two, that that, as you said, that that's a whole different that's wartime footing. Yes. Submarines, really uh, 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 protecting the coast. I I've I remember traveling and seeing uh, monuments to it and some of the stories of mm-hmm. what that meant for people that even we think of you know Army Navy Air Force, but the Coast Guard and Merchant yeah. Marines and things like that played an amazing role uh, in World War II. And so yeah. you 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 know, grew up with these stories of this service. Yeah. yeah, my grandpa said he used to clear like the shells off of the deck of, when they'd shoot the guns, the, the big shells. He'd help clear those away. And um, the Coast Guard cutter he was on was called Dwayne, and they actually helped capture a submarine that had one of the two Enigma machines on it during World War II. Really? So, really? yeah, the I Enigma just, machine for the, that helped crack the, the uh, code that, the, that yeah. the Nazis were using. Yep. That's so, pretty important. And I actually had learned about that after he passed away, but he didn't really talk about it. But yeah. And he always was a public servant too. After that, he loved baseball and he ran a a league in his community in Milwaukee area for kids and just, you know, and my grandma too, just, I was always surrounded with this patriotism and and even my father who had a completely different experience coming home from Vietnam and the way that he was treated versus, you know, World War II veterans and, and Mm -hmm. still he served and still loves his country and still, you know, encouraged me to follow my dream to do the same thing. Wow. Now your, your, your father was a pilot as well. Is that correct? Yeah. He flew H-34s and uh, he, um, it was like the, not a dust off pilot army, but the same types of missions uh, in the Marine Corps in Vietnam. Wow. That's gotta be some like, uh, just an amazing experience and and pretty challenging to say the least to to be a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Yeah, absolutely. I think he flew over 600 hour or missions. Um, yeah, wow. it was an insane amount of missions and air medals to to go along with it. And um, his only requirement for me, if you can call it that, was he's like, I really want you to fly something higher and faster than a helicopter <laughs> if you're going to be going to combat because <laughs> that was <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense i'll tell you i have immense immense amount of respect for the helicopter pilots that fly in combat and uh especially during vietnam where they were at such risk uh i remember at a neighbor at one point that that used to be a a helicopter a huey pilot in vietnam and i asked him whether he had any interest in flying helicopters you know, now. 
And he basically said, you know, once you've done that, it's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Yes. <laughs> Check next. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Don't have, not going sideways through trees and not being shot at. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, when, do you remember when your first flight in an airplane was, cause you said fourth time yeah. when you went to the Academy. Yeah. Um, well, so, and my parents were teachers, um, again, like that public, like serving the community. Um, so there weren't a lot of funds and there were five kids in my family. Um, so my dad and my parents were divorced. So my mom and stepdad were teachers. My dad was a, a guardsman, um, in Minnesota and, um, he gave me a ride in a 172 for my 15th birthday. So that was my first flight, 15 years did he, old. Did he know that that's exactly what you would want? Yeah, see, because I, I, you know, since I was six, I'd wanted to fly. And I think it was around 12 years old where I was really like, started to dig into like, I really want to go to the Air Force Academy. And um, so for my 15th birthday, I, I got that flight. And then later on, I went to camp at the Air Force Academy and I, I like sold some of my stuff so that I could buy the ticket to fly out to Colorado Springs and, and go to the swim camp. So that was my second and third flight. And then the fourth flight was, was the one out there to basic training. And, and so this is kind of interesting too, to back up. So when I was 12 years old, it was well before uh, women were allowed to fly uh, in combat. And, you know, when I saw Top Gun, I didn't want to be Charlie. I wanted to be Maverick because that looked pretty cool. And and so around 12 years old, and I'd seen the Thunderbirds fly, I went to um, my liaison officer for the Air Force Academy that was in my area. And he's like, well, uh, you know, there's two things. He's like, one, you're like way too early to start the admissions process to the Air Force Academy. And two, you know, they don't let women fly in combat and you can't fly fighters. So I was a little bit crushed by that. And, and you know, talked to my dad about it. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if this is a good for me and he said that's nonsense <laughs> and he told me about the WASP the women air force service pilots who flew during world war ii and he said they flew every airplane they flew every mission that the men did except for combat and it's your job if this is your goal to do everything that you can so that you are qualified and you're first in line when they change the laws and sure enough my senior year in high school uh, in april of 1993 the combat exclusion for women uh, in and fighter aircraft and then combat was lifted and I graduated in 1994 and that's when I started the Air Force Academy. So I literally like my day one stepping onto the Academy, this goal and dream and vision that I had for myself was, was available. It was did, an option. Did you sense, uh, it, like the, how momentous that was to be on the ground floor in the academy at a time when the goals had now changed and that were the rules and the doors were open to, to combat? Absolutely. I, um, I was, my senior year in high school, I was writing a paper that everyone had to write. And it was, you know, like you knew when you had this English class that you would have to write a paper about what you wanted to do after high school, like where you want to go to school and what kind of career you're looking for. And I'd, I'd been anticipating it almost like little Ralphie writing, writing about his Red Rider BB gun. <laughs> and um, I knew cadets that were there and I knew pilots and, and I'd been, I'd read all these, like everything I could get my hands on. I read the the college handbook, like of all the courses that you could take at the academy, like who even reads that, you know? And so I, I went through all of this and, um, and I wrote my paper and I handed it in and my teacher gave me an F on the paper. Um, but the day I was writing the final draft of the paper, 
it was the the night that the paper was due the day after they had the press conference that lifted the combat exclusion. So I was literally writing out my final draft of the paper because we didn't have, you know, computers in our homes back then. I was writing out the final draft and the TV was on and they came up with a news flash and it was the chief of staff of the Air Force in the Pentagon press room with three women pilots standing behind him announcing that women were now allowed to fly in fighters and, you know, these were the first three there. So then I went to school and I turned in my paper and when I got my grade back, she gave me an F on it. Because <laughs> she just didn't see a world where women should be maybe in combat, you know, and if they were, maybe they shouldn't be flying fighters. And um, so I talked to her a lot about it and showed her how serious I was and how much I had researched and put into this and thought about this paper. And she changed my grade from an F to a D. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Feel it right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my. Um, that's a, a, a. I'm glad she made some concession on there. Yeah. But did, did you ever think about you know? Okay, I need to take that letter and attach it to maybe some Air Force uh, stationery <laughs> on letterhead yeah. and send it back to her. <laughs> I need to find it. It's probably somewhere. <laughs> yeah, find that and do it and, and put it on with the signature of your headshot with the Thunderbirds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it all worked out, you know, I mean, and, and maybe that's good motivation, right? It's You don't want to do things just to spite people. And I, I mean, sure as heck didn't do it because of her, but but that's motivating too, right? And even when you're one of the first women and you know, I think now nowadays people are more accepting, but a lot of times in my career, I was the one and only, or maybe not one and only, but the very first woman that some of these men had ever been in a fighter squadron with. So it was a lot of pressure, you know, and, and it was still, um, you, you just didn't have all the support that you wanted. So it, she wasn't probably the last person who didn't think that I belonged in a fighter cockpit, <laughs> you know. But, but well, well, problem. we'll get to it later on in, in the show, but obviously you do a lot to, to inspire people, to coach people and to help people. And do you think that that part of the formula, in addition to just, of course, being an amazing individual, a, a two set success is the people that encourage you, but, but perhaps also the adversity that you sometimes face? Yeah, I, I think the adversity is really the important part. Um, it's, I mean, succeeding is pretty easy, right? Even if you work really, really hard and you succeed, like that's a great thing, but it's more motivational and a more test of your mettle to mm -hmm. fail and continue. And how do you learn from that, right? And how right. do you, how do you recover? How do you reset your goals if you need to? How do you stick to your goals? Um, and how, how do you come out of it? You know, when we fly missions in the Air Force, especially the larger large force engagements where you're training a lot of people at the same time. Like we, we look for objectives going into and then, and then debrief it. Um, and a lot of times we try to think about like three main things. There's a lot of things that can, can go wrong, but, but think about three things that, that you can take away from it to do better at next time. Um, so I think that's, even if you do succeed, there's always varying levels of success and failure, right? It's, it's not mm -hmm. always a binary um, success isn't always binary. So there's, there's always ways that you can look to improve yourself right. and to, to get better the next time that you go fly or the next time that you, you know, work, have an issue with your child or your spouse or somebody right. at work. So. Well, it seems like, uh, 
you know, if trying, we, we're all trying to put together uh, the best that we can to motivate kids and, and to help everybody, you know, help people develop. And there's so much about mentorship and encouragement and opening all of these doors. I think there's something also to be said by what you're talking about now, which is the ability to be faced with obstacles and to be able to overcome them and to kind of within boundaries uh, deal with failure and then learn how to recover from it. Absolutely. And I think leading by example is one of the most, if not the most effective form of leadership, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when you, it's great to talk to people and I love, I do free mentoring for um, kids that want to go on to an aviation career in the military. Um, and I'm happy to talk to anyone who wants to go to the Air Force Academy too. Um, so I've given out a lot of my information. I have a website too, where they can um, contact me through that way. Um, but <clears throat> it's, it's really important to not only mentor, but just to, to be a good example on how you conduct yourself. And, and you can talk about stories about, I guess that's part of the examples, the things that I went through, but then still like, what are you going to do next? And what's your next step mm-hmm. looking ahead? Right. Well, I think, you know, one of the things I admire so much about you is that there, there's so much that you've, you've overcome uh, to get to where you are and to, to achieve the goals that you have that it, I think it brings it into reality uh, for so many other people that you inspire. Uh, It's, it's easy for people to be put on a pedestal and kind of looked at as, as heroes where you don't see beyond the next level. And it seems like they succeeded at every single thing all the time. And we're always first in their class. And that um, it's kind of, that's a great role model, I guess, but it's intimidating and it's hard to identify with when, when things hit you as a, as someone watching that and trying to use that as inspiration. If you never see your heroes falter in any way, Um, you've told me a little bit about some of the challenges you had at the Academy can you tell me a little bit, tell everybody a little bit more about yeah. that? Because I think that plays right into it. Yeah, well, despite my D on my paper in high school, I was a straight A student. So, um, but I did work really hard for that. And I worked very hard to get to the Air Force Academy. Um, there's a lot of things you need to do with the community or if you want to, you know, choose to work through your church. And I was the captain of my swim team for three years in high school and track. And, and you know, I did everything that I needed to do to prepare myself to be admitted and to succeed at the academy um my first semester my first year at the air force academy was brutal like you're sleep deprived i mean they really built break you down to build you back up and that's kind of what basic training is in the military and they want to build you back up as a team and and show you how much you can handle and how strong you are um so there was a lot of that uh at the air force academy and then just a very heavy academic load and um, it's one of the greatest engineering schools in the country, if not, you know, I'm sure it's ranked within the globe as well. Um, I am not a STEM person. I think it's very important. I ended up majoring in English and I got a Bachelor of Science in English, which is pretty rare. But my first semester with this, That's huge, impressive. Course load, yeah. <laughs> this huge course load of all of these um, technical courses, it was really um really difficult and I didn't fail anything, but I came close and I really had to juggle things and make sure that I prioritized what was the most important thing to, to study for and um, at the expense of other things. 
And um, at the end of my first freshman year, I got my grades back, passed everything. I had a 2.2 grade point average. Um, <clears throat> at the end of the academic year, we all have to kind of move around to make room for the basic cadets to come in. And so I had to move from one dormitory across to the other dormitory. And I was walking out uh, <laughs> on the campus there. We call it the Trotso at the Air Force Academy. And I was like right in front of that big, beautiful chapel that people have seen, you know, the mountains are in the background. I don't see any of that because I am like Charlie Brown moping head down, dragging this cart behind me that had all of my worldly possessions, which was about like three Tupperware tubs full of stuff um, to, you know, to my summer dorm room and just feeling sorry for myself and really thinking like, why did I work so hard to, to do this? Like I, I gave it 200% my freshman year and I got a 2.2 grade point average and I have three more years to go. And granted your freshman year is really the most difficult, but just, you know, I was really, really down on myself. Like, you know, I worked really hard to be in this position and this is like one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. And as I was feeling sorry for myself, I was startled. There was this, whoosh, this whooshing sound going by scared the heck out of me. And I look up and like goosebumps over my whole body. There was a Thunderbird. It was, you know, right. We're getting ready for graduation week. The Thunderbirds were in town and the Thunderbirds were flying. Um, and they were between, there was one aircraft flying between the mountains and the, the front range, like from my perspective where I looked up and I was like, man, like that's it. Right. Like, because I am here, even if with my 2.2 grade point average, I have the opportunity to go fly fighters someday. And, um, and so it really reinvigorated me. And then in 2012, um, one of the, my favorite sorties or flights I've ever flown in an airplane, uh, we went to the Air Force Academy for graduation my first year on the Thunderbirds. And uh, partway through, like the wingmen hold high, I was number three, the right wing, and we were holding up high. And when we dropped down, we were running our low bombers lines. And guess who was flying between the chapel? and the mountains right it was me and I was like oh my goodness I can't you know believe it and just think if I'd given up that I, I never would have been there and then also think about how many cadets are moping across the terrazzo right now and need that inspiration so um it just it was really great and you just you never know where you're gonna end up if you just like stick with your goals like you know I was right and I was doubting myself that I that I set that goal for myself but you know I, I stuck to it and I I took that failure and I embraced it and I majored in English and I succeeded. And by the end, I was on the Dean's list. <laughs> oh my God. That is so, so wonderful. And, and what a great story. And the idea, like you said, that, that you literally switched places and mm -hmm. may have been the one inspiring someone else or giving them encouragement not to give up. That's right. I hope so. <laughs> I'm, sure. I'm sure there was I, at least one. <laughs> there is no question that, that, that there's just a reason there's a grading scale there. There has got to be someone who is walking across the truck, so not feeling so good about themselves at that moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you go, you made it through the academy. What happened? Where, where were you after the academy? Um, after I went to the Air Force Academy, I went to Del Rio, Texas for pilot training. I actually ended up staying at the Air Force Academy for almost a year um, because I was flying the, the T3, the Slingsby T3 Firefly. Um, we had three fatalities, unfortunately, uh, actually six fatalities, three crashes. There were three cadets, one from the class of 96, 97, and my class of 98 um, that perished flying that aircraft, and they shut down the program. 
um, the summer that I was in it. And um, I was literally sitting in the airplane when a cadet came running out and said, General Fig Newton says we're done. And they, they canceled the program. Since I had no flying experience prior, I ended up staying at the Air Force Academy and I got to teach a bunch of officers who came in how to fly gliders. And, and so that was a pseudo first assignment. But then I went to pilot training in Del Rio, Texas. Mm-hmm. And my first assignment graduating from pilot training was as a T-38 instructor pilot, first assignment instructor pilot, Wow, um, which I loved. It's a really difficult aircraft to fly, but it's, I don't know, it was my first plane. So my first real aircraft. That must have been very difficult. I know that the, so the Slingsby had what, vapor lock issues? Yeah, um, it, um, there were, and I, I can't recall everything right now, but I think there was, um, it did have vapor lock issues. I believe like the last one and the day that we shut down, if you pulled the throttle back to idle, the wind, the prop kept windmilling and it didn't sound any different if it was cut off or if it was just windmilling and idle. And so they were, there were incidents where they were, people were setting up for a simulated engine out landing. And then when they would push the throttle up, there was no hmm. thrust because the There's engine no. had locked out. So, um, and I, I believe one of them was like a traffic pattern incident too, but um, I, it's been a while since I, I had looked at those mishaps, but it just, it was really sad. Um, yeah. You know, the first one was a good friend of the cadet who lived next door to me. The second one, um, I had just moved to a new squadron and this cadet had been in the squadron with these people. And so I, I watched them learn about their friend who had just passed away. Um, so that was, you know, you just, your heart goes out to those people. And, uh, and then the last one was a classmate of mine too. And, um, wow. so it's just, you know, and that kind of sets the tone too. It's like aviation and especially in combat aviation, you know, those things happen and, you know, they say yeah. everybody dies, but not everybody lives. And, and I believe that they were living and doing something that they really loved when, when those things happened to them. And, and I think that's why we do what we do. Right. Even though there's some inherent danger in, in aviation. Yeah. That's I, I like that saying. I hadn't heard that before. Everybody dies, but not everybody lives. That's uh, that's very interesting. Um, the you mentioned about flying gliders. That's a big thing in the academy, and and that was your your first thing. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think I ended up with like 110 hours, and it was like a point two at a time. <laughs> um, <laughs> we did a soar for all program so after your freshman year you could elect to take the the soar for all program and i luckily even though i did horribly at academics i was a natural when it came to flying so this goal that i had had and was like luckily i was pretty good at it and i got selected to be a glider instructor um there so we did an upgrade program over um the first semester and then we got to teach other cadets and they'd bring in rotc cadets too from other schools and get to, you know, learn from a lot of other people. And it was a great group of folks. And it's awesome to see all the, the soaring friends that I had and people that I knew back at the academy go on to do like really wonderful things um, later on in life. But it was amazing, wonderful foundation to build my, my own personal aviation um, skills on and, and just get that air sense. Um, so I, I think it's a great way for people who want to go out and and flying, it's a little less expensive than powered flight. And it's a, a great way to really like learn something. And it, there's so much, it's serene and it's calm. And, and, uh, I do remember my first flight, we did like a aggravated stall and I it scared the heck out of me, but it was so exhilarating at the same time. I like couldn't wait to go and fly again. <laughs> I, I, I have heard 
you know, people who are very experienced glider pilots and powered aircraft pilots say that they believe every pilot should have glider time. Do you, is that how you feel? Yeah. I mean, energy management and, and really like running through, if you have a, a certain number of events that need to be accomplished on your flight in order to, you know, check everything off that you need to, to get all the experiences you need to working towards um, licenses or whatnot. It's, it, you have and we didn't do any thermaling there so it was really you really just manage your energy and you really had to keep an eye on where you were going to land and what you had next and just running through that whole mission the lineup of the events that you needed to accomplish to then get back and then assessing the winds constantly and how or if they were changing to make sure that you landed on the field where you were supposed to be and that can be tricky weather changes really fast in the front range in Colorado so yeah I can, I can only imagine. <laughs> Keep an eye on it. So tell me about your aircraft pr- progression. What got you, uh, you know, all the way to the F-16? Uh, so I flew the T-37 tweet uh, at, in Del Rio, Texas, and then I went on to the T-38. Uh, and that's my first plane that I was an instructor pilot, and I came right back into that. Um, then so the, I... The tweet, the Cessna that's like basically yeah. loud as as possible yeah, like people who like they lose hearing in the ear if you flew too many hours in it they <laughs> have some hearing and that, damage and the talon the t38 that's the talon is that correct yes the t38 talon it's a that's, that's what we see on like used to be that every single airplane any anytime there was like a movie with a low budget they had like where they didn't they where they were going to show fighters and everything else was always a talon yeah well you know what like I did a couple air shows before the Thunderbirds and, you know, as a static display and people are like, Oh, I love this plane. It's just, it's so sleek looking, the beautiful thin wings and like the Coke bottle fuselage. And um, so it looks like a a little fighter, but it's very, I mean, you have to be on your toes all the time. It won't let you rest and it's pretty underpowered, especially at high altitude and, and higher temperatures and, um, so it, it really makes you pay attention, and I love the airplane, but, but you, it, it'll talk to you, too. If there's certain times, there's a lot of buffet on the airplane when you're flying around the pattern for quite a bit really? of it, and yeah, it's, um, it's, I loved it. It's a great plane, and it looks cool, so people who don't know airplanes don't know any better. <laughs> oh, it really does look cool with those little, yeah. little, it is, it is one, If <laughs> it's a sexy plane, there's no question yeah. about it. <laughs> Um, but that's interesting about what you're saying about what it was like to actually fly the T-38. Cause I didn't, I, 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 don't, I hadn't heard that it was, uh, that it was fairly challenging and a really good trainer. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there were quite a few incidents and accidents with it when it first came out and it's been in service for over, I think it's like over 60 years now. Um, but they had problems with, it could get, like I said, below the, um, um, below speed on final, they ended up adding like AOA indexer lights to help make people aware of where they were on their angle of attack. Um, mm-hmm. And then when they called it like the saber dance too, it could easily get into like a big wing rock and kind of a sink and then it didn't have enough power to overcome it. And a lot of that would happen in the traffic pattern too. So mm. there were, there were quite a few mishaps. And unfortunately in the last uh, couple of years, there's been more mishaps again with the, the T-38. So it's, um, it's, again, very challenging, and it's been around for a while. So the yeah. Air Force has on contract the um, T-7A Red Hawk to take its place. It's an awesome airplane. I'm very honored to have five hours in it. 
<laughs> and I can't wait till other people get to fly and see what a great aircraft it is. Absolutely. That is, that's very, very cool. So, um, so you go from the T-38 and what, what came after that? Uh, I went to the F-16 and I trained up at Luke. My first assignment was to Korea, to Kunsan uh, Air Base in the Republic of Korea. Uh, I came home after that and um, I only had one year in Korea, but since I had had all this experience flying the T-38, I uh, had a great squadron commander who um, kept an eye on me and, and he had been a FAPE as well. And, and so um, made sure that I was good to go and they upgraded me to flight lead before I left Korea. So after one year, came back wow. to uh, Hill Air Force Base and then I uh, we deployed pretty quick, like within probably nine months after I got back from Korea. Uh, wow. deployed to Iraq with the 4th Fighter Squadron. Um, Was there, is there a big difference when, when you go from something like a T-38 that's basically designed to, to teach more than anything, I guess, and then you're going into an F-16, which is, I would assume, designed to, to fight and therefore not to be difficult on you at the same time as you're doing the rest of your mission. Did, you, did that feel like a, a, a big, big transition? You know what the so I flew T38A. I think I had um, eleven hundred hours. It's all like the steam gauges. Then I had to transition when I went through an introduction to fighter fundamentals course, which is just a really short course, a couple months long. Mine was a couple of, like an extra, almost double because we had to upgrade into the T38C, and that had the the color displays and the you know the electronic displays, and um, the heads up display also. And that transition from something I'd known and like, if I want to check the gas, I don't even have to think about it. My eyes go there and it all computes. And now I get into this airplane. I have all this time in and I'm like, I have to like stop and look to read my engine instruments. That was really frustrating. And then like looking through a HUD for the first time too. And, and, um, and so that was really kind of frustrating. And then when I got to the F-16, I mean, it fits like a glove. It like moves when you think about moving the the stick on the F-16 like barely moves around. And so like literally it's just like the pressure of your hand and your fingers that kind of make it move and the throttle so responsive. And, and so it's, you know, the fighters are set up so that flying, the actual act of flying the fighter, it's like walking and breathing and we don't heart beating. Like we don't think about those things. Right. So those fighters are made so that the pilot can, the plane is an extension of them and they can really put their focus in into the systems on the aircraft that they need to execute the mission. Wow. And, and was, was that after you, you completed those courses, is that when you, when you were deployed to Iraq? Yeah. Um, after I went through the course at, um, when I graduated out of Luke Air Force Base back then, then I went to Korea for one year and then I went to Hill and after Hill was when I, deployed over to Iraq and I was there in 2007 um, and with a really talented and and pretty young group of uh, fighter pilots and I think um, we had an awesome squadron commander we had amazing support staff and our maintenance was really awesome as well and um, and we just we did great I think everybody really wanted to make sure we did everything right and um, and we kind of got this great reputation with the guys on the ground whose lives depended on where our bombs went and how well we executed the mission. And, and we were called on quite a bit more than some of the other squadrons, even on base to, wow. to execute mission. When, when the things got really bad, they were like, all right, our, our call sign there was Ninja. We were the fourth fighter squadron in the Fujins, but Ninja was our flying call sign. 
And uh, so they would call a ninja for whatever they needed. So it was just, it was like really rewarding. And like I said, it was, a, we were pretty young. My flight from taking off from Hill Air Force Base, I flew across the ocean, right? And I, I didn't volunteer for it because using bladder relief in an F-16 is really tricky, especially for women. And so that was something I was a little bit concerned about, but it's, it's no big deal. Like I figured it out, but I didn't volunteer for it. And I got selected to fly one of the aircraft over into to Iraq. And so um, we took off from Hill Air Force Base and I think it was like three o'clock in the morning or something. I felt like we were flying into the rising sun for like, we took off in the dark, flew in through the sunrise and we were like in and out of the weather. And, um, my squadron commander was leading the formation and I was like the next most experienced person. And I had literally been to the tanker like maybe five times. And now I have to go to the tanker like 10 times to get to Iraq. And we ended up like hitting some like cloud layers and, and the wingmen also were like me, like, you know, we didn't have tankers when I was in Korea cause you didn't need it. You were just staying on the peninsula. And so when I got back to Iraq, or when I got back from Iraq at Hill, they were upgrading a bunch of the aircraft. And so I think I went to the, the tanker like one time to rehack my tanker currency. And now I'm flying it for like 10 and a half hours into Spain from Hill. Wow. And the people on the wing, the other wingmen other than the squadron commander were very similar to me in experience, if not less. Isn't that but interesting? We rocked it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. Was there anything <laughs> that you remember about uh, your missions over there? That, that I mean, because it, it sounds like you went straight from, you know, the frying pan and the fire, straight from going and, and training and learning, but then now it's for real. Um, what did that feel like? Um, it felt rewarding. I felt like that was my purpose in life was to be there and do that. Um, our squadron, like I said, was very successful. It felt really good to be a part of a team. Um, I think I loved checking in with a JTAC, the joint terminal attack controllers on the ground who are kind of have an eye on the, you know, the enemy or whatever situation they have going on down there, especially when things are really tense and you'd kind of check in and, and you could almost sometimes like hear them just kind of calm down. Like when you got on, you are like, all right, like we're here. This is our, you know, what we've got this is how much time we have. This is what we're carrying you know, as far as ordinance and, um, it felt good to be able to help them and to know that, that they felt some sense of peace and security because we were there and that we could get the job done for them. And, and like I said, it was just this huge team effort from, you know, the guys loading the bombs on the aircraft. I worked with the same crew chief quite a bit and they were awesome. And we had guys sitting alert all the time. And I, I remember like the first time I dropped the bomb and between and we then I still had to go fly like for two more hours after that you don't just like go home you still have other things you have to do and I pulled up to the tanker and the tanker boomer was like oh my gosh like tell me all about it you know like <laughs> we're all part of this like and you get back to like even you know everybody who's working on the ground and whatever your job is in the air force like and in the military like you're all really part of that end result putting that bomb on the target on time saving lives of you know our U.S. troops and allies, like, that's what's most important, and everybody has a piece of that. You don't have to be the one to hit the pickle button to, to kind of be the, you know, the hero of that. There's, everyone has a, has a part of that success. Do you remember the first time that you actually uh, uh, fired live ordnance in battle? Um, I do, yeah. There was a, 
nighttime. It was around Baghdad, and uh, there was a um, meeting of um, high-value targets that were Al-Qaeda Iraq and passing out uh, IEDs, like distributing them, and that was the target that um, that I dropped on the first time, and um, it was they were very like eager to get us to drop and they really wanted to contain while everybody was there and um and there were helicopters too that were like waiting off into the the sides and um there were some issues with jamming there and so when you go to drop a weapon they give you a run-in heading too to make sure that there's safety for all the friendlies and everything else around there and the run-in heading was on the short way of our so it really jammed the approach because the the area that we had assigned to us and you it would change all the time but it was like the long way so we were on the short way of like if it was like a rectangle instead of being or sorry um yeah a rectangle being the long way we were the short way on it so it was, it was like kind of jammed but we came around and and i was like hey ninja 27 in hot and he goes cleared and then it goes wah, 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 and all this jamming came through and i'm like you know, Ninja 27's in, and he doesn't, and I can't hear anything, and I come back around, and he's like, Ninja 27, you know, are, are your bombs away? And I'm like, no, like, you were completely jammed. I only got one word, and he's like, cleared hot, cleared hot, cleared hot. <laughs> so as we're, like, coming back around to get on final to drop, and then um, you watch everything happening, and uh, there were helicopters coming in to make sure that they got everything, you know, that nobody made it out of there, so... Wow. Um, it was a huge success, that mission. And then that same mission, and this was a daylight one, my wingman and I went up north and we were looking for hot spots because they had, had um, people were digging and planting IDs on the side of the road. And so we were looking for stuff like that. And you look for hot spots, but it can be anything. Sometimes if someone throws a bag of trash or, you know, a cow drops dead or you know, whatever, something turned over, but sometimes they put bombs in those things, right? So we were looking, it's like, well, there's a hotspot here, and the JTAC's like, no, I just want to see if um, there's someone, you know, like, actively digging, and as he's saying that, my targeting pod, like, picks up people actively digging, and I'm like, you mean like this? (laughs) And we see, like, three guys and they throw shovels into the back of a truck and one guy goes that way and the truck goes that way. And so I put my wingman on the truck and I follow this guy going out to the North and he goes into like a herd of sheep. And I'm like, well, and it's kind of hard to see. And if the sun's starting to go down and you're looking at television and you're looking at temperature. And, and so he goes into a herd and I'm like, well, I got him. He kind of went in the same way he came out. No problem. And then he keeps kind of going and he goes into a soccer game. I'm like, well, that's hard. So he kind of like mingles around with all these people playing soccer. And I'm like, I'm like, probably I have him, but I don't know. Cause it's, you know, kind of tough to keep when there's like a group of people running around in circles. And then, but the person that I thought it was, he went out and he went out of the game, the same direction that he came in. And so, um, my wingman kind of ran out of the airspace over there. And so he kind of came up and joined me. And they were like, hey, we want you to drop on him. And I was like, I don't know for sure. Like, we, we made very certain before we dropped anything that we, no kidding, had the proper target, right? You'd rather let something go than do something, you know, especially if there's, like, no imminent danger to anybody on the ground right there. So um, he 
went into this building and we're like, all right. And I was like, we got to go home. And he's like, all right, you can do a show of force. And we did like this show of force, like right over top. And the army showed up there later. And sure enough, they found like this whole cache of like weapons and fake passports and all this kind of stuff. So that was on one mission. We stopped a whole bunch of IEDs from being distributed and we stopped another like trafficking of arms and I think they were like Syrian passports or something like that. So um oh that was one day. And they're not always all that exciting though. Like many of the missions are literally flying in a right hand turn, like looking in your targeting pod and maybe something happens and maybe it doesn't. So it's you know, it was like a lot of boredom punctuated mm -hmm. by moments of <laughs> excitement and, you know, like the mission has to get done. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. Uh, um and it really it's it's I don't think I've ever heard uh, before in such a personal way what it's like to be involved in in the mission uh, like that. So I, I definitely appreciate that. Um, now, of course, after that, you eventually came back home and and somehow found your way to the Thunderbirds. What, what was that path? Uh, well, so I came back home and um, I had decided to transition out from active duty to the reserves and I also um, was pregnant with my son right after I came back from Iraq. So I decided to go back to reserves and that ended up being at Shepard Air Force Base and back in the T-38 again, um, which was really nice. Um, pregnancy, I'm sure you probably have quite a few listeners who had to get back into the cockpit or wanted to get back into a cockpit after pregnancy, but um, it was, it's tough and pregnancy, sleep deprivation, brain fog. Um, I don't know, I felt like I, I was really lacking the cognitive abilities that I had prior to my pregnancy and getting back in the T-38, which I had flown for so long at the beginning, at the very start of my career was like therapy. It was so awesome. It's because I knew everything about it. And it was like, I felt like there's a little string in the back of my head that you pulled and all that knowledge came out, like everything that I like, I knew how to instruct it naturally. It, like it's ingrained in me, like give me a T-38 now I'll teach anybody how to, <laughs> go land that thing, you know, let's go cross country. So, um, so it was really nice and very refreshing to get back into it. And I, I was doing that part-time as a traditional reservist. So I'd switched over to the reserve and I was thinking about being a stay at home mom and plans change, things change. And so I decided to try to get an active guard reserve job. Um, I was also teaching the simulators as a, a contract employee. So I would, teach Sims in a blue flight suit. And then I would pop on a green flight suit and run across the street and go fly with students, uh, which was really fun. And it's, you're a NATO there too. So there's a lot of great different cultures and people that you meet there. Um, so it was really wonderful. Uh, and then they had in 2004, I can't remember now, but Stroker Gustafson, I was, had a four month old kid, I think at home. I don't, young kid at home and the reserve magazine called citizen airman showed up at my door and it was like the middle of the night and I opened up this magazine and they were like, there's an article about Stroker Gustafson, who was the first reservist to fly for the Thunderbirds. And I was like, that's it. Like, I want to do that. You know? And when I came home from Iraq, like we had had such a great time, like the, the squadron and I was like due for an upgrade. And, and so the pregnancy while being wonderful, it, it was like kind of this weird completely opposite of everything where I was kind of going with my career. And so it was hard to leave, even though it was such a blessing and, you know, I would never change anything. Um, so when this kind of is like, Oh, there's an opportunity to get back into 
an F-16 and, and, you know, I'm, I always loved the Thunderbirds and it really impacted me, but it was never necessarily something I wanted to do. I told you about my dad and my grandma and my grandpa, and I always wanted to serve. And if that meant combat, that was something that I was a thousand percent ready to do if my country asked me to do that. So now that I've done that and, you know, I, I have a story to tell and it's different than most and it can help to recruit a different demographic than you normally think of in the military and especially in the fighter community. I really jumped at the opportunity to go and apply for the Thunderbirds. So, so I was a reservist and I applied for the team and uh, I got selected and went out of Shepard Air Force Base to down to Nellis to become a Thunderbird, the right wing number three. And I mean, what is involved in the kind of indoctrination to that world? Because the, the the Thunderbirds demonstration squad is a culture unto itself, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. It's a family. It's a really high level of um, work and skill that's required out of every single member of the team there. Um, it was so funny. Like, I remember when I first got there, um, the executive officer was like, all right, I'm going to check you in. And he's like, here's your sunglasses and here's your pen to sign autographs. And I was like, what in the world is this? Like, <laughs> it's just the weirdest thing, um, you know, but uh, so you kind of I didn't get know you all that. had government issued sunglasses and pens to oh, yeah. sign. Everyone had to have the same sunglasses. And then you had two, like one pen to sign and a different like tribe pen that everybody would carry so you all look the same right because it's uniform but you're representing you know your country and you're representing precision not just flying demonstrations but the precision of the department of defense and the precision that i talked about how you put you know a bomb on bad guys and make sure that you're getting the right people that's what that represents but it's a visual representation that we can share with the american public versus you know what you do in combat you can't see right um so it's very important that everything's uniform, but it was, that was kind of funny, but I mean, it was, it's a brutal pace when you get there. Um, we flew two times a day, every day, Monday through Friday. And I remember, I think it was February. Um, and I just, in the last like four work weeks, I had flown 40 times. And I went to a meeting at the wing at Nellis Air Force Base. And I saw like one of my buddies and, and I was just like, I'm like sitting there, I'm like so tired. And he's like, yeah, how's it going? And I was like, yeah, it's great. I mean, like, dude, it's just like brutal. And he's like, yeah, I know. He's like, I've only flown five times in the last three months. And I was like, oh, I'm glad you went first. Like, I have a good problem. Four times or 40 times in the last month is a lot better than five times in, you know, a couple months. So, um, so it, it was all of this while being a single mom. Well, no, I was still married at the time. So, um, and that's kind of a funny story too. So I was the first mom to fly on the team and I was at Disneyland when I found out the team called me and they, one by one, they went through and said, Hey, Blaze, congrats. You know, you're selected for the team and you're going to be the right wing. And, and they go through all the officers and everybody gives you a congratulations. And um, so we were walking through Disneyland. So when I take that phone call, you have to talk to like 12 people. I like went into, we were walking through Cinderella's castle and I ducked out of the way of the public. And I was like, oh thanks you know like in Cinderella's castle and my son's in a stroller <clears throat> and my now ex-husband is like pushing him and and um so they're kind of like waiting for me outside and I come out I was like oh my god this is so great you know and and we were walking and then all of a sudden like my son starts hollering and he had 
messed his diaper, like one of those really bad blowouts that comes out the neck. So I was like instantly grounded, right? Like, I think you're going to be some fighter pilot, you know. From here pilot. to here and back to earth. Yes, yeah. So no matter what, I mean, and that's my first priority all the, all the way is being a, a mom. But um, so then going on the road, my, my son finished potty training while I was training in the F-16 to go back, um, to get back in the F-16 to go to the Thunderbirds. Um, and so it was a kind of nice timing, but when you're like trying to fly a demonstration and then you have a toddler in the room and they're throwing Cheerios everywhere and they don't want to sleep in their own bed, they want to sleep with you, mom, and you're getting feet in your face and, you know, knees in your gut all night long. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, and, and they fuss, you know, people would come up to me and be like, oh, can I take my picture with you? And, and I'm like holding my baby for like the first time and I'm like, sure, okay, you know, so it's, it's like, you're trying to balance your job and, and wanting to be with your kid, but it was really cool. He got to, to see that. And, and I was on the team when sequestration grounded us. So I stayed over an extra year in 2014. And I think he was, he was six years old then. And it was kind of a blessing because he was a little bit older enough to know like mm -hmm. what mom was doing. And when you taxi out and you get to like wave at your kid and they're like, oh, like, you know, standing there with all the other Thunderbird families and, a six-year-old gets it, no question. Yeah. yeah, he got it. So there's actually a picture behind me here on the wall. Um, my last air show, he was walking around with Grandpa, and a news reporter just saw this cute little kid in a flight suit and stopped him for, like, the man-on-the-street interview for the local news in Las Vegas. And he's like, hey, little boy, what's your favorite part about the air show? And my son's like, mm, well, when my mom flies... <laughs> And the reporter's like, like incredulously, he's like, oh, really? What does your mom fly? And he goes, she flies one of those and pointed out at like the Thunderbirds. <laughs> so he got it, right? And I'm really lucky he didn't say like, you know, the helicopters or the four-wheelers or the guns or the cotton candy. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh my God, what an awesome, you know, kind of like, you know, wrap up to your life story at that point, mm -hmm. up to that point that your son was able to say that and point out like, that's, what do you think my, my mom's doing? She's the star of the show. She's number three. <laughs> in the wing. Yeah. And it was cute on the news. They, so he, he goes, she flies one of those. And then on the news, they cut and they go for the record, his mom flies one of these and they go Whoa, and showed the Thunderbird pass. And so I did a speaking engagement in Las Vegas. Like a, it was almost a month after that. And at the end of it, the first question was like, was that your son on TV? <laughs> So they had all seen it. <laughs> I was like, he's a celebrity. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, so tell us a little bit as we approach the top of the hour and what you're doing these days, because uh, I know that you just keep keep moving and growing and um, and continuing to be an inspiration. Well, I started my own business and I love to do inspirational speaking. Um, really, my primary job right now is to focus on my son. So I felt like I was in most integrity with myself and I'm very, very blessed that I retired with a full active duty military retirement. I live within my means, which doesn't include me buying an airplane right now, but you know, I live within my means and I've been able to, to um, focus on being there for my son who moved around quite a bit um, because of the military service. So we're, we're stationary here for right now. Um, so something that goes great with being a single mom, um, even though I do have my ATP, I'm not using it because I can't be gone half the month. And God bless all of our airline 
pilot friends who do that. Um, but I do uh, inspirational speaking and I do corporate and leadership coaching and counseling. So I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm working on a book. Um, one of the things that I kind of touched on before, but, but really my favorite job right now that I do is I'm working on the board of directors at the National Wasp World War II Museum. It's down in Sweetwater, Texas. It's at Avenger Field, which is the field where the wasps train themselves. It's hallowed ground. If you haven't been there, you need to go. We have a homecoming um, experience in April where we have a dinner and a big band dance in the old hangar and airplanes and everybody kind of dresses up and it's, it's just like, it's amazing. Um, so I've been able to work with the Wasp Museum and work on different projects where we are uh, doing fundraising right now to renovate all of the displays to make them full museum quality displays and preserve a lot of the artifacts that we have too. We, we have a great archive and figuring out how we're going to help display that and tell the story of the Wasp. And then um, looking at flying their airplane, hopefully soon Then we have a BT-13 and we're looking to add a T6 to, to that, hopefully sometime so, soon. And I'd love to go out and do the air show thing again. So I've got a lot of irons in the fire for a retired person, but you know, single mom, Wasp Museum is probably second. And then I, I really do love that coaching and connecting and, and doing the, the speaking part too. That's when absolutely it, wonderful. And I know that you're looking for aircraft down there for the Wasp Museum. So if yeah. anyone has a line on a T6 Texan yeah. uh, uh, to, to help out the museum that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it will tell a wonderful story for the rest of its life and, and be very well taken care of for sure. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Well, Caroline, thank you so, so much for your time and your amazingly inspirational story and joining us here on Social Flight Live. I, I, I'm absolutely in awe of you and I, I appreciate everything that you've done for our country and, and for aviation as a whole. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's been an honor to chat with you. Absolutely. You have a good evening. You too. Take care. And to all of you, thank you again for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next Tuesday on November 8th for, with Kenneth Katz talking about fly, uh, the, uh, the B1 bone. He uh, wrote this amazing book on the story of this bomber, uh, the B1 history from the perspective of technology, of, of politics, the whole what it really took to get this beautiful aircraft in the air and what happened during its life. And so I'd really encourage you to join us for that show. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. On Tuesday, November 15th, the incomparable Corky Fornoff, the pilot of the uh, uh, BD-5 jet in the James Bond movies and who really set the stage for aerial coordination in so many movies and stunt flying. He'll be here on the show as well. And then on Tuesday, November 22nd, you Avionics will be here talking about some amazing products from them with Shane Woodson. Again, thank you so much for joining us. We are here for you, and uh, I just appreciate everything that we, you all do to make the general aviation community what it is. Until next time, I wish you all blue skies.